What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to the Intelligence Squared podcast. I'm producer Catherine Hughes. Ian Hislop is reputedly the most sued man in Britain. At the age of 25, he became editor of the British satirical and current affairs news magazine, Private Eye, known for its in-depth investigative journalism into underreported scandals and cover-ups, as well as its caricatures of prominent public figures. He joins us on the podcast in conversation with Samira Ahmed, and together they discuss political scandals, satire, and the UK's libel laws. The recording for this episode took place in April 2021, when Boris Johnson was still the UK's Prime Minister, which is referenced in the conversation. This episode is part of our series, How I Found My Voice, hosted by Samira Ahmed. If you'd like to hear more, please go to intelligencesquared.com slash podcasts to listen. I'd lost something like £1.3 million that afternoon of a magazine I'd very recently just been taken over and entrusted on the grounds that I wasn't going to mess it up. And I had. I think I was at um, the same school as Bin Laden. I think we overlapped uh, briefly. Do you remember him? Uh, no, <laughs> I, <laughs> he did all his stuff in a cave. You know, we had 15 million people watching on a Sunday night and we were doing jokes about the cabinet. It was fantastically rude and we got away with it. Hello and welcome to this live podcast recording of the British Broadcasting Press Guild award-winning How I Found My Voice. I'm Samira Ahmed and the idea is I go behind the celebrity persona to find out what influences shaped their success. How did writers, politicians and performers grow up to become such great and unique communicators? And my guest today is a man whose establishment education could have put him on the path to becoming a politician, but instead he's devoted his career to comedy, to satirical and investigative journalism. Ian Hislop may be most recognised for being a panellist on the long-running TV show Have I Got News For You, but he uses his voice most powerfully as editor of Private Eye magazine for is it 37 years, Ian, is that right? 
About that, yeah. (laughs) I did some maths. For 37 years so far, Ian's been exposing political corruption, wrongdoing by the powerful and the pomposity of the rich and famous, including with his annual Paul Foote Awards, recognising outstanding investigative reporting. He's taken many risks, including being reputedly the most sued man in Britain for libel, including by crooks, I can say this, such as Robert Maxwell, who were only exposed years later. And he's also very well known as a historian, documentary maker and writer. Ian's explored many of the institutions and ideas that define modern British identity, including nostalgia. Very fashionable now. Ian, welcome. (laughs) Thank you very much. That's quite an intro. So you were born in Wales, but you saw the world at a very small age because of your dad's work as a civil engineer. Nigeria, Saudi Arabia, Hong Kong. What was the young Ian Hislop like growing up in these places? Well, I think I must have been very adaptable. I mean, that that's the thing I'm always amazed at my parents looking backwards. You know, my father saying to my mother, oh, by the way, darling, I've got a job in Nigeria for four years. Can you get on the next plane? Yes, of course. And then two children sort of under three carted off to them, literally the middle of nowhere. And then we lived in Kuwait. And uh, at one point, I seemed to have lived everywhere. There was a major conflict. And then Saudi, where... I think I was at um, the same school as bin Laden. Um, I think we overlapped uh, briefly. Do you remember him? Uh, no. <laughs> I, <laughs> he did all his stuff in a cave. No, I, I have no memory at all. This is just what sort of the, the old boy network suggests. And then uh, went to live in Hong Kong. I basically spent the first years of my life just completely out of it. And then I was sent back home to school in England, very classically. So I always felt that I had a vision of England, a vision of Britain, but I didn't live there. (laughs) Um, I had to go and find out what it was like. So this is private boarding school. You became head boy eventually. And I think it's fair to say it's one of those places that helps create our political ruling classes. How did it shape you? Well, I loved it, obviously. There was a prep school and then a, a senior school. So there were two bits of it. But I was there for about nine years. And I once I found myself talking to a school, I mean, fairly recently. And there was a very sort of impressive head girl who said that they just set up a house system and uh, the houses were named after Nelson Mandela and uh, Greta Thornburg and Winnie Mandela. And it was all, you know, sort of incredible. And she said, did you have a house system? And I said, yes, ours were named after British admirals. Uh, You started off in BT Rally or Drake and then you moved up to Nelson or Grenville. And I realised we came from different eras. Absolutely. Um, Your English teacher was a big influence on you, got you into drama. He was um, both the English and the drama teacher. This was in the senior school. And um, he became a great personal friend. His name was Colin Templet-Wood. And like a lot of people, a single influence is often enough. And he'd done a lot of acting, I think, when he was a student. So when we read plays in class, which I only noticed as I got older, he always took the main part uh, (laughs) and read all of it. But he was brilliant. So it came alive. So we forgave him. And I've heard the audio of you singing in the school production of Oliver as the wife of The Undertaker. I'm quite a difficult part to try and steal any thunder (laughs) during. Um, But I had a go. Again, like sort of all ungrateful school children he was a fantastically good drama teacher and one year he let us do a review after the school play 
So we rewarded him by largely imitating him for the entire review. <laughs> Incredibly mean. Do you think that was the first time you started to think seriously about a career in, in kind of comedy and satire of some kind? Do you know, thinking seriously is probably pushing it. I remember we used to do a review. We started doing it and then we did it sort of whenever we were allowed to. And we did a career sketch once in which um, the basic joke was I said, um, I'd like to be terribly, terribly rich. And then my friend playing the careers master said, well, you should become a bursar at a private school and just take all the money. And we thought this was hysterically funny, but we didn't realise that, you know, the bursar was in the audience. And thank God the headmaster, who was rather marvellous, thought this was the funniest sketch that had literally ever been written. Uh, <laughs> so we were not punished. Am I right in that your father died when you were quite young? Were you just 12? What impact did that have on you? Quite a lot, I think. It's partly why I enjoyed school so much, because I sort of threw myself into another world that wasn't the domestic world. You know, my mother was in her 40s. I mean, you know, she was incredibly bereaved by it. And I found a, a, an alternative place where, you know, I could make very strong friendships, and that was clearly what I did. I have a feeling that when you've lost a parent very young, you develop quite a thick skin quite early. And I think you do get a feeling that, well, what else has life got? Um, and sometimes some of the things that um, other people find more worrying or more stressful, you think, yeah, ish. So, you know, these were fairly sort of um, tough and resolute places. And uh, having lost my father, I became a bit duffer. Yeah, well, it's so interesting for what you went on to do and the, the kind of risks you found yourself facing. You went to Oxford incredibly young. Was it 16 that you got your place? I got my place at 16 and then I had to sort of waste some time because I think don't think anybody thought it'd be a good idea to go up literally at that age. I mean, this was the period where Ruth Lawrence was studying maths at 14. And so I went off um, travelling for a year and I was on a kibbutz I went and worked, which was, you know, more communal life, but of a rather left-wing rather than a right-wing variety. So that was a good change. And when you went up to Oxford, originally to read PPE, which is the classic politician's degree, politics, philosophy and economics, what was the plan and what changed? What changed is that I was sitting in the Bois de Boulogne reading Lipsy's Guide to Basic Economics about a month before I was meant to start my course. And I thought, I really don't want to do this. <laughs> I don't think I can do this. And, I mean, you did mention my father earlier. I made a, because he died young and he was a civil engineer whose work and who obviously I greatly admired. And I, I just kept making decisions. You know, I chose all science A-levels. I got into Oxford reading maths. I just kept choosing subjects that I thought were a bit like him and that I should be a bit like him. And I I think I, I suddenly realised I don't want to do this and I could be me. So I read English, which was absolutely marvellous. And my mother, who was, I should always give credit to, I mean, it repeatedly, I mean, this is whenever I used to turn up and say, oh, by the way, mum, I've changed all my A-levels. I've chosen all the wrong things. Do you mind? And she'd go, no, darling, that's absolutely marvellous. Or... I've changed subject at university. Uh, do you mind? She go, no, no, that sounds terrific. And it was a good lesson 
that essentially you should trust your children. university you relaunched the satirical magazine Passing Wind with your friend Nick Newman who is still a very good friend and collaborator of yours and you interviewed people like Peter Cook and the private eye editor Richard Ingram for it was there a plan there as well thinking I'd like to get onto private eye um but the initial plan was the brilliant thing about um, running a student magazine is you could get to interview all your heroes which I more or less did secondly you can print all your own jokes uh, without anyone saying, no, I don't think so, because you're the editor. And the third thing was, by the end, I thought, I wonder if I can do this for a living. I mean, it seemed too much fun to believe that I could get away with this. And the joy of being 2021 20, is it's possible. This is the early years of Mrs Thatcher's Conservative government, 79 onwards, a really interesting time for comedy. And I know after university, you worked on... Well, you did stand-up comedy and Capital Radio, those you know, broadcast um, shows that you were in. And this was the early days of the big alternative comedy scene. You did not become big on that scene as a performer, did you? No, absolutely not. I was terrible. What I wanted to do was essentially write sketches and write print. I didn't want to tell people what was in my head on a monologue. And uh, it was 83, Spitting Image turned up, which was absolutely terrific because it was the perfect vehicle. My friend Nick Newman was a cartoonist. I'd written, you know, photo bubbles. The whole format was geared towards the sorts of things I could do or I thought I could do. And it was an incredibly exciting time. Tell me a bit more about that TV show. So this is a TV comedy that was created out of Central TV around on ITV late on Sunday nights. And it was was considered quite shocking to some extent when it started for having these big, foul-looking puppets that lampooned royalty, politicians, celebrities and everyone. And it felt like it had a, a big impact at the time. I know they've revived it quite recently, but how do you look back on its impact? Well, I can't believe it. I mean, because there were so few channels, you know, we had 15 million people watching on a Sunday night and we were doing jokes about the cabinet. It was fantastically rude um, and we got away with it. The papers were constantly outraged. I mean, they were they were extremely Thatcherite, more or less across the board. So any criticism was taken very, very badly. And Norman Tebbit was a very um, then considered a very thuggish right-hand man and Mrs Thatcher. And we did a sketch about him saying that the um, unemployed should basically just eat themselves. And uh, because you could do anything with a rubber puppets, we had him putting his arm in a liquidizer and it just <laughs> turned into this amazing goo. And there was complete outrage, you know, this disgusting sketch. I turn now to your latest proposals for unemployment. Certainly. Well, come on, what are they? There are, there are many ways people can help themselves without becoming a burden on the state. For example, if the unemployed are hungry, why don't they eat their own bodies? All that good meat going to waste, it makes me mad. Even the partially employed can help. Norman! Yes, Roger Law said, um... You're the one who's educated, Ian. You can write a letter to the Telegraph. So I wrote a letter to the Telegraph saying that Jonathan Swift had done this yes. joke years before we had. 
and he'd suggested that the Irish eat their children in a modest proposal, and that the Telegraph usually was a big fan of Swift and told us that we should become sort of better read and more literate. So it ended up being my job as a sort of snotty early 20-year-old to start lecturing the Telegraph about their own editorials which you can imagine I enjoyed hugely. No, it's really interesting that you had to have that relationship with papers as well, even when you were sketch writing. I have a specific question about Spitting Image. When I talked to the producer, John Lloyd, about it, he said he thought it was a kind of release valve that let people let off their anger through the 1980s. But actually, he now looks back and worries that nothing changes do you think it had power? Does it compare to now when politicians have so much direct access to the public via social media? I often disagree with um, Jonathan about satire. I think he hopes it will do too much. I think I probably read an awful lot of it and I realised that um, you do the best you can. And in the end, satire is always partly a, a release of pressure. That's the point of it. It allows people to blow off without blowing up. And that's pretty good. And you have to be careful. And as a satirist, you know, I've been in the game a long time. And I think, firstly, you console yourself with, if I hadn't done this, would it have been worse? Um, and thirdly, you take small victories. The point of satire, after all, as I, I think I've, I now believe, is to crystallise an opinion. It is to make a point comically. It is to focus uh, what we people were saying. And you make that. And that is worth doing. People say, well, you haven't toppled the government recently. I say, well, you know, you've got the vote. That is your job. That isn't mine. Have you got an example of a, a victory when you say, you, you know, there were those victories that happened? The poll tax was absolutely marvellous. Was, it was just the, the very simple matter of the Conservatives saying, uh, this is called the community charge. We'd like it to be known as the community charge because it's a community charge. You mustn't call it the poll tax, <laughs> at which point you just go, oh, it's the poll tax. We mustn't call it the poll tax. It's that sort of thing that you can do. And then it, it starts disappearing. I have a feeling we're going to get this with the vaccine passport. And they're going to say, no, no, it's a COVID status certificate. And everyone's going to say, it's a passport though, isn't it? It is though. I was thinking as well as spitting image, you created Tim Nice But Dim for Harry Enfield, didn't you? The uh, sort of posh buffoon. Yes. And um, that again, um, Tim Nice But Dim was based on nearly everybody Nick and I were at school with. Because the 80s, we were sick of seeing all our contemporaries portrayed as brilliant, sharp, go-getting Thatcherites, winners in the city who were bestriding the world and shouting greed is good. Because most of the ones we knew were just perfectly nice and quite dim. And Harry Enfield said to us, do you have any characters who don't shout and aren't working class? And we said, yeah, I think we can do that. Because his were, there was a fairly broad range of, of Harry, loads of monies and equivalents. So we wrote Tim Nice But Dim. And his basic line, I mean, I'm very fond of Tim, which is just that everybody was a bloody nice bloke. Uh, and the fact is that he just, he never really understood what was going on. Thank you so much for coming. Yeah, not at all. Uh, absolute pleasure. Um, what is it exactly? A scoffing competition? <laughs> Actually, this is the lunch for the starving. Right, well, uh, count me in. I'm absolutely famished. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's for the starving in Africa. Oh, really? Yes. Gosh. Long way for them to come just for lunch. <laughs> No wonder Charlie's sister was worried about numbers. I wonder how script writing 
you know, focusing on that rather than performing stand-up shaped your voice as the editor you were to become. I remember going to see Alexi Sale and right at the beginning of, of you know, that amazing comedy revival at the Comedy Store. And it was a sort of, it's a flow of consciousness and it's a bubble and it's a very, a very particular skill stand-up. And I'd done a lot of review when I was a student, you know, which is essentially performing sketches. It's a very different game. It's characters and it's it's gaining a voice. And I think that's why in something like Private Eye, it's sort of very silly columns and in which you adopt voices and which you essentially aren't doing your own voice that becomes really funny. And I think most of those those characters and those narrators in the eye come from an idea of Let's pretend to be something else. Look, look at the top pledge on the top. We will invade Iraq against the wishes <laughs> of the people of Britain. Yeah, but it was, it was Miliband who stopped the invasion into Syria. I haven't heard you say much about that. No, no, because I'm, I'm more interested in the previous one, which well, you we were involved wrong. in. And we made it clear that so. We made a mistake. There's no doubt about that. I just wanted to ask one more question about how you use your voice, specifically on Have I Got News For You, because you're a kind of stand-up without being a stand-up there, and you're very comfortable with it. It works. Have you thought about the persona on that show? It's just an exaggerated version of me, I suppose. And when it went on... I think no one quite knew what it would look like or turn out like. But, um, I mean, Paul said, you know, basically most British comedy is about class anyway, so let's get this sorted straight away. (laughs) Um, Then it became fairly clear what our roles were in terms of defining Britain. And oddly, I mean, it was like that old sketch with the three people looking down on each other. And Angus was resolutely in those days sort of middle class and aspirational and loved football and invited the whole Man U team to the green room and uh, new celebrities and um, was spotted out with people who'd been on the telly. This is the presenter, Angus Deaton. Yes, who um, he left. But Paul and I stuck it and we remain that essentially bipolar um, (laughs) feeling about Britain. (laughs) <laughs> I think that's well put if one's allowed to say that anymore. You became deputy editor of Private Eye at just 25, which is remarkable, and then editor at 26, and then immediately cleared out some of the staff, including uh, is it Nigel Dempster, who's sort of famous gossip columnist for the, the Daily Mail. Again, I'm fascinated by the, the plan or the audacity. What was going on? Well, I, I didn't like what they did on the magazine. I felt the magazine had become very Fleet Street and very obsessed with a very small bit of the world. And the bits I really liked about Private Eye, which were the investigative journalism, which was essentially a big 60s phenomenon that had slightly died off in the 70s, and the jokes, which were absolutely fabulous. And I thought, well, this is amazing, but can I get rid of this bit? I didn't like the Grovel column and I didn't like Dempster and I didn't like there was a journalist called Peter Mackay who was there. They didn't like me either. And looking back, you know, I can see why, you know, they were in their mid-40s, I was 25. I must have been incredibly annoying. But when the decision came to be mine, I axed it and I axed them. You'll know for all the changes you've made and the emphasis on investigative journalism, an accusation made against Private Eye, certainly in the past, less so, but still sometimes now, is that it's 
got a public schoolboy ethos, which could sometimes be misogynistic, sometimes even borderline racist in the sort of, you know, the sort of parody accents and things. Have you been conscious of that? And how would you say it's evolved under your editorship? I think it's a bit simplistic to say this is public school, as though the rest of the country had never changed or that the 70s weren't entirely full of television programmes called Love Thy Neighbour. So I accept that it is a certain type of public school humour, but I would say that includes quite a lot of British humour and quite a lot of very good British humour, both cartooning and prose and written material. And I hope we've got the best of that tradition, if not the worst. Is it fun working on Private Eye? Yeah, why do you think I'm still there? <laughs> People say, why, why didn't you go? You've been there for ages. You know, just give up, give it to someone else. And I go, yeah, but why? It's really good fun. <laughs> so no inheritance planning yet then? <laughs> no, no, no. You sound like my lawyer. Um, <laughs> you know, I will have to go. I accept we are all mortal. But you're only 60. Yes, exactly. It's the new 35. Yes, an age I would have considered ludicrously <laughs> old. <laughs> fun because now I'm going to move on to some really serious stuff. You, you know, Private Eye was sued a lot for libel. One of the, the kind of famous cases was the newspaper tycoon Robert Maxwell, 1986. You were also sued by the estranged wife of the serial killer, Peter Sutcliffe, sorry, Sonia Sutcliffe was his estranged wife, the so-called Yorkshire Ripper. And she initially won £600,000, which, you know, even back then in 1989 was a phenomenal amount of money. And afterwards, you famously said, if this is justice, I'm a banana. You did eventually secure a kind of appeal against that. But how do you look back at that time and these amazing libel cases that were brought against you, which people were winning, at least at the time? I find it difficult to believe. I do remember very, very clearly... Not only was there £600,000 in damages, which was staggering, but there was about £700,000 in legal costs, which made I'd lost something like £1.3 million that afternoon of a magazine I'd very recently just been taken over and entrusted on the grounds that I wasn't going to mess it up. And I had sort of embarrassingly, made a number of quite pompous speeches about how my predecessor had really let libel get out of hand and I was going to very much crack down on it and reduce these bills. And I more or less bankrupt the magazine. And, you know, that was an extraordinary case because it turned out years later that what we had alleged was exactly what had happened. She had taken money for her story, exactly as we'd said, but um, we didn't have the receipts and... They turned up. <laughs> it was an absolutely extraordinary case. And it ended with this possibility of the Yorkshire Ripper's wife being totally bankrupted and then having to sell the, the house where she'd lived with the murderer in order to pay off her debts. And the, the thought of inheriting a share of the assets of the psycho house was not really for me. I thought we would just 
you know, let the matter lie. Well, you very prominently pointed out at the time of the original libel win that the criminal compensation to the Ripper's victims was no more than £7,000 for each of them. So, I mean, I was struck by the fact that you, you always had a clear sense of why you'd pursued this case, why you stood by it. Did you have full backing from the board of the magazine or were there divisions about whether you should be defending these cases? In those days, the proprietor was Peter Cook. He was, um, you know, the the great late comedian and he was the majority shareholder. And Peter's view was, if I said we should go for it, we should go for it. Um, He was the ideal proprietor. And we have the most fabulous readers. So when I thought, why? I've messed it up. I've entirely ruined this magazine I've been given. We'll start up a fund, see what happens. We started up a fund. They put in a vast amount of money, the readers. And so successful was that fund that we distributed all of that money to the victims of the Ripper rather than pay our own costs. How did you keep going then if you were so close to bankruptcy? The truth is we sold a lot of copies and that was always the bottom line. You know, the damages were hugely reduced on appeal from 600 down to 60. And the libel laws were hugely revised and reformed and changed at that period, partly due to those settlements. So I think the sight of private eye turning up in the high court and having to pay a million pounds to the wife of a serial killer, it threatened everybody's idea of natural justice. You know, you got a couple of thousand pounds if you lost your leg. If someone said, well, you took money for your story, you got 600,000? Um, extraordinary. It was an extraordinary time for those who just remember it. There's one other libel case I want to ask about because I came to court as a young reporter at the BBC to cover the start of it. And it was about private eye, and I think some newspapers had also reported on historic sex abuse in children's homes. And the abuser was a police superintendent called Gordon Anglesey, and he successfully sued for libel, was initially awarded more than £300,000 in damages. And I remember that on the first day of that libel trial, a young survivor had to give evidence. It was utterly horrifying. And I remember seeing, you know, the, um, the plaintiff in the dock, absolutely sure of himself. 22 years later, Anglesey was convicted of the abuse in 2016, died shortly after. And now we know so much more, don't we, about the scale of abuse covered up by establishment institutions. You must be so angry. I was very angry at the time, um, but I couldn't be angry myself because we'd, I mean, this is, you know, I say privatised fun. I mean, this was the least fun story I ever covered and was utterly grim and we persuaded a number of young men to give testimonies and one of them killed himself um, afterwards because he'd never been believed. So there was never at any point where I felt angry for myself. I felt this was a shocking and really tragic story. And uh, many years later, it turned out that what we'd alleged, and it wasn't just us, it was The Observer and HTV and there, there were four parties in um, yeah, the Independent on Sunday, I think, was in right too. The Independent on Sunday, yes. Sorry, critic, where you? Um, and the final settlement, which was agreed after the jury had come to their verdict, was huge but not record. And it was a very strange case. I mean, he was a policeman. There were no other police who gave evidence. At all points, there was something very wrong with this story. But we didn't make the case, and unsurprisingly, Boys who come from a sort of really tough, Borstal-type home don't turn into ideal witnesses as young men. And the other side ripped them apart. I always thought, I'm particularly in the intervening years, should we have done this? 
what on earth were we doing pursuing this case? So I'm, in terms of my own career, I'm hugely relieved that in the end, a measure of justice was done. And because I, you know, I'm sort of obviously vain and self-centered or I wouldn't be in this business, at least I can feel I didn't screw that one up. And I think you know, more, nearly 20 years before Jimmy Savile was properly exposed, Private Eye was there actually trying to put these stories out to the public domain. Do you think it is anger that drives you, all the injustices? Yeah, I mean, I do seem to get stroppy. I mean, people always say, you know, you seem to be very bad-tempered. <laughs> I mean, some of the time. And, um, yes, I think it is just a feeling of, Someone once said, you're not very tribal, you're not actually political in any any real sense. You just seem to be furious that things aren't done better. <laughs> and maybe that's it. You know, if I see the, the news that David Cameron has been camping in a tent with Mohammed bin Salman, I'm genuinely appalled. You know, whatever you thought of him, you know, fresh-faced prime minister whistling away, messing it all up as he went along... That's one thing. Sitting in the tent a year later with a man who the entire world has decided has just murdered a journalist. What are you doing? For a lobbying job? I mean, OK, the Queen has to meet various heads of state. If you're prime minister, you may have to meet various undesirable people running other countries. I know we can't have lovely people running the whole world. But you're out of office. You don't have to do this. I mean, it's just revolting. It's weird as well that this has become the scandal that's being picked up when, as you know, right now, controversies around the current government feel so shocking. They feel at a new level to many people. And I was watching footage of you on Question Time a few months ago, you know, still using your voice. How does it seem to you? I think it's interesting that the lobbying scandal has blown up, partly because Boris can then say, this is my predecessor, look, look, isn't this appalling? And then shift the emphasis away from him. But it is the same story. It's essentially about people in government not acting in the public interest. I mean, I've sat in front of this committee that is meant to decide on what we call the revolving door principle, that you are not allowed just to breeze into government and then breeze straight out again into these firms. And I sat there and there are a lot of sort of, I think, attentive MPs and I just said, I don't see that this is a really difficult one to understand. If you're the military person in charge of buying the missiles, then when you retire from the military, you shouldn't probably join the company <laughs> that sells the missiles, because then we start thinking something's a bit odd. And people going, well, you've got to have experience in government, you know. Uh, I don't know how naive you think you are. And you're saying, not being naive, but just saying this actually stinks. And the whole establishment of a independent and focused civil service, it's another of these British institutions I'm quite interested in, mm -hmm. which was meritocratic and open and focused on integrity. That was the point of the civil service. The idea that, oh, didn't we mention it? This civil servant's working for another company. Do we not mention that? No, you bloody well didn't mention that. How on earth is that legal? I mean, it is pretty disgraceful 
that we've managed to go back 100 years in terms of public morality. I think that's been part of the shock, isn't it, that how, how frail our systems were. Um, I want to ask another question about Have I Got News For You, still going after 30 years. You'll know there are those who accuse the show of, in its own way, helping the careers of people like Boris Johnson, Nigel Farage, Jacob Rees-Mogg by enabling them to become showbiz eccentrics. And I was watching a clip of Nigel Farage from 2014 when he was very much on the rise and he played a game called Fruitcake called Looney, and he absolutely loves it. David Cameron was very rude about your people, wasn't he, Nigel? Oh, he always is. Yes, he can't help himself. He said no, they were fruit, all cakes, fruitcakes and, and loonies. And loonies, and yes. worse. He said worse than that. He did, right. I think it's time for a game of fruitcake or loony. Uh. <laughs> OK, everyone, fingers on your buzzers. I'll show you some UKIP party members. Uh, you have to buzz in and tell me whether they're a fruitcake <laughs> or a loony. And I remember I presented a show called Newswatch, which is viewers' complaints about news coverage. And we had so many people saying, the local elections, why is the BBC giving so much attention to UKIP, who at the time weren't polling as well as the Lib Dems, but were getting much more coverage? And the concern that it was building him and building UKIP up. And I'm haunted by that. And I remember talking to editors about it. How do you feel? Do you feel uncomfortable about no, not any at of all. it? I think the main accusation is, well, you shouldn't have these people on. So the idea that you would invite everybody else on or only people who The Guardian approve of or only people who are considered absolutely acceptable should be invited on a show, even if you're going to be rude to them. So I think that's sort of untenable and also slightly dangerous. And also there is a problem, and this is the same problem as giving people the vote, I'm afraid, um, that <laughs> if you allow people airtime, which they probably are allowed, people might like them. And as I have to constantly remind the younger metropolitan London audience, you voted for him twice for mayor. I didn't vote for him. I spent my entire time saying don't vote for him. But you did. You thought he was funny. He never appeared on Have I Got News For You after he'd become mayor. He appeared in the early days when he was a, an amusing and useless journalist and when he was first a backbench MP. The idea that he, Farage, built their careers on Have I Got News For You, it's, it's flattering for the show. I just don't think these arguments hold. Now, you have something in common with Paul Dacre, the former editor of the Daily Mail, and I bet you know what it is too. I don't, actually. You're both passionate campaigners against aspects of... Um, privacy laws that Parliament sometimes wants to bring in. Tell me why it's still so important to you. The thing with, you know, someone like Paul Dacre and whatever, they do believe in the freedom of the press. I mean, you may not like the version of the press they do, but what they want to do is be allowed to investigate, report and find things out, which is the basic journalistic impulse. And I'm very pro that. So I, I know people think, well, you seem to have some quite sensible views. And then we come to the freedom of the press and you're ghastly. You're like a tabloid. What's wrong with lovely Hugh Grant? Why can't you just join up with Hank Doff <laughs> and, and really sort things out? And I mean, I, I know the free press is, as I often say, it's, it's not very pretty, but it is free. And I'm old enough to, you know, been to lots of places where it isn't free and it's really, really grim. I mean, if you want to look at, at Turkey right now, you can have a look at how quickly the freedom of the press can disappear. Starts with jokes, comedians, opposition newspapers, and then there isn't anyone. 
and there's a lot of people in jail. I want to go to audience questions because there's a really good follow-up to what you were just talking about freedom of the press. Ian, as a long-term Private Eye subscriber, I've detected little, if any, change in the Eye's courageous editorial and journalistic approach over the last 45 years. But did the Charlie Hebdo attacks rattle you at all? Oh, I, um, yes. I mean, you know, I knew one of the cartoonists, Cabu, um, who used to work on um, uh, Le Canal Chenet. And when I was very young, I did an exchange. And I'd met Cabu a couple of times. And then he went to work for uh, Charlie Hebdo. And, um, you know, the gunman walked into the building and said, who's the one on the telly? And then they shot him. So, yeah, I mean, you know, it was a very sort of frightening time for everybody. And it was an extraordinary incidence of basically people dying for the right to laugh. So it was very sobering. Yeah. I've got a question from Lynn. Why didn't you or why don't you, there's still time, go into politics? Well, that's a really nice question, but I think in my small way, I'm probably more useful where I am. Which makes me wonder, you know, considering how many people out there who fill the pages of Private Eye with their terrible wrongdoings had the same background and education as you, does it feel weird being, in a sense, you're a whistleblower to your own class, aren't you? I mean, a class, I'm using it in too big a way, but you know what I mean? I do think that's what satire has always been about in Britain. It is people who are on the inside pointing out what is going wrong. If you're on the outside, you tend not to know what's going on. Therefore, it's a very useful job. But I suppose what I, what I would like is for the best and the, the institutional standards and the things which I genuinely believe in and approve of in the democratic structure of Britain as we have it, to be maintained rather than corrupted. You know, I'm not under any illusions that what I do would be transferable elsewhere. You know, I last five seconds in Beijing. You know, there aren't satirical newspapers. They don't have, have I got news for you in Tehran? It's not on. Um, You know, it is worth remembering (laughs) that I am enjoying some of the freedoms which we have, and I am trying to preserve those freedoms. Well, it's interesting you mentioned the global picture, thinking of Hong Kong as well, where you lived as a child and how much that's changed. Are you overall optimistic? It certainly feels that in Britain, there might we might be starting to see a turn with the reaction to, say, the Greensill capital lobbying scandal. Um, yeah, I always try and be optimistic. I mean, Hong Kong is bizarre for me, is to see student protesters flying the flag of the old colonialists (laughs) as though this was better than the option. I mean, there was no democracy in Hong Kong uh, when I was there. It was ruled by the governor um, (laughs) in the hat. What transpired, and um, I think they're an extraordinarily brave and brilliant um, bunch, the Hong Kong protesters and the umbrella movement and what they have got, I think, is absolutely wonderful. And I, I really hope they manage to sustain their own life. I don't know whether it's worth being optimistic about that or not. No. Well, certainly one of the strange realities of modern British politics is that despite the government having a reputation of being anti-immigrant, they are welcoming potentially 300,000, I think they're expecting Hong Kongers to come, who are being absolutely welcomed. Right, some specific questions. Uh, This programme is temporarily going to morph into Ian Hislop, This Is Your Life. Sibby Jacob asks, what's your best example of satire that relates to more modern times, such as coronavirus? The virus was a bit of a challenge in terms of attempting to make it funny. But one of my favourite headlines we run was coronavirus gets Trump. And uh, 
there was a long interview with the virus saying that he was really hoping to shake him off and that it had laid him low for a few weeks. And in the end, um, he would just have to put up with it. So, um, I mean, Trump gave us a lot of laughs, but the virus has, has itself been extraordinary in terms of people's release. Probably into the last question, I'm going to try and shoehorn two together. Craig asks, you mentioned Boris Johnson was mayor twice. And Craig says, I think part of the issue is that often the alternatives are worse, maybe, Boris or Corbyn. Hmm. Have you seen the calibre of politicians and politics drop in your time at Private Eye? And I want to tag on to that is, and also, given the pressure on the BBC and the changing media climate, do you worry about that combination as being quite a dangerous one? The second half of the question, yes because I think the, the, the BBC shouldn't be bullied and shows signs of being bullied. All governments try and bully the BBC. I remember Tebbit doing it. I remember Blair, Mandelson, Alistair Campbell, almost the worst of all of them doing it. So it's not merely conservative governments who do it. They all say they love the BBC until it runs something about them that they hate. And then they start saying, well, it's time the licence fee was finished. It's always a direct threat. So yes, I'd be suspicious of them for doing that. Um, the first half of the question was... Um, the calibre of politicians. Again, I think the old tend to get nostalgic about the marvellous quality of politicians when they were younger. These are the same people who they were fantastically <laughs> rude about at the time and said they were all useless. So I think what's very specific with the Boris cabinet is that they've all been selected not on merit, but on their opinion on Brexit. So you have an entire cabinet who is only there for their opinion on one subject. And therefore, the calibre is about as low as anything I've ever seen. And won't re resign over obvious issues that you might have expected them to. Sir Robert Jenrick over the Richard Desmond uh, property donation, etc. Yes, I mean, there is a Trumpian lack of shame that nowadays, if you're caught, you, you don't resign, you just brazen it out. And if the Prime Minister is perceived to be too weak to sack you, because by the time we'd gone through the Cameron government and the May government and the Boris government, there wasn't any talent pool left. It had all gone. Um, you were literally left with this lot. Then it's difficult to get rid of them. Ian Hislop, it's been an utter delight talking to you. Thank you for sharing how you found your voice. This podcast was made by Intelligence Squared. The producer was Farah Jassat. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please do subscribe. Tell your friends and your family to check it out. And we'd really appreciate it if you could also take a very quick moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. This helps us to raise the profile of the podcast and it helps other people to find the show. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. 
we've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.